0: How do we know that we can trust the plan of God? How do we know that we can trust the word of God and the promises of God? Most of us here are aware that even if we have not read the Bible all the way through, even if we do not have large portions of the Bible memorized, we are aware that in the Bible there are promises, that in the Bible that the Lord has laid out a plan for us, and He has laid out a a plan of redemption, that in the Bible God has given us a word on which we are to receive in faith and build our lives upon. But how is it that we are to be certain that we can trust the promises of God? How is it that we are to be certain that God's word is reliable and trustworthy? How is it that we are to be certain that God's plan will come to fruition and that God's plan he will carry through? The truth of the matter is is all of us know way too well what it is to be lied to, don't we? Some of you grew up in a home in which your dad lied to you all the time or your dad checked out completely and you're left wondering, who can I trust if I can't trust my dad? Some of you go and you have had a husband or you've had a wife and they cheated on you. They, they vowed that they, they would... They would love you through thick and thin. They, they committed their lives to you, saying, I, I will always fulfill these promises. I will always, in sickness and in health, in rich and, and poor, and, we got in poverty, we will be together. And then they betrayed you. Some of you have been lied to by friends. Our culture is a culture of lies. Open your mailbox. I guarantee at some point this week, you will receive a key to a brand new car in your mailbox. I have won more cars than I can count, but guess what happens when you take that key to the car lot? Oh, no, that's not what that says. We live in a bait-and-switch culture, and as a result, we wonder if maybe we have a bait-and-switch God. A God that promises one thing but delivers something else. A God that gives us one promise but we aren't certain if he's going to be like our earthly father and not deliver. Perhaps this is all just some massive fundraising scheme. Perhaps this is all one big plan of deception. How is it that we know we can trust God? As we move into the second week of Advent, I want you to understand this is what Advent does for us. This is what Advent teaches us. Advent teaches us about the reliability and the trustworthiness of the plans of God and of the promises of God. If you were not able to be with us last week as we kicked off Advent, I would commend the sermon to you to catch up. But the word Advent simply means come, come. And so we, when we talk about Christ's Advent, we talk about His Advent being two times. Christ. First coming, the, the coming that all of us celebrate at Easter, the coming where he, is di- where he dies, is buried, and is resurrected. And then we celebrate Christ's second advent, the longing for Christ's second coming, when he will return in victory for his church. And so throughout this morning you'll hear me say advent, and when you hear me say Christ's advent, we're thinking Christ's coming, Christ's first coming, Christ's second coming. If you have your Bibles, I hope you would turn with me to Isaiah chapter 52. Isaiah chapter 52. In the early church in the first century, and the centuries that would f- immediately follow, they believed that Isaiah chapter 52 and 53 were the pinnacle of all of the Old Testament in regards to its teachings about Jesus. They saw more rich theology come from the fourth servant song of the book of Isaiah than any other passage in all of the Old Testament. And so as we read these words this morning, we read them with centuries, even millennia full of Christians that have found hope and joy and richness and worship in these words. Would you stand with me as we read God's word together? We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 52, beginning in verse 13. We'll read all the way to the end of chapter 53. 53 should have begun at verse 13, but hey, the chapter division's not in here. All right, read with me. God's word says, Behold... My servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silenced, he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered as he, that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. You may be seated. the book of Isaiah, the prophecies are dire. It comes to a desperate time in the life of God's people and is particularly given to the people of Judah, the the southern kingdom. See, throughout the book of Isaiah, they are teetering on the edge of exile. They have an unfaithful king, surely to send them into exile. Then they have a a child born to them, Hezekiah, his son, that begins to depend upon the Lord. And there, there is some hope and there is some restoration only to be finally given the prophetic words through this man of God that exile is coming nonetheless. And so you have the people of God bracing for the punishment of God. You have the people of God being prepared for the exile due to their own unfaithfulness, due to their own wavering hearts, straying spirits. Yet they are largely unconcerned. They are largely non-responsive. You see, in Isaiah chapter 6, God calls Isaiah and commissions him for this work. He commissions him for this this great task to go and to be his mouthpiece, to speak on his behalf, to call his people to faith, to call his people to faithfulness, to call his people to repentance. But he tells Isaiah, their eyes are going to be blind to the truth. Their ears are going to be deaf to what you are saying. Their hearts are hard and they will not be softened. You're going to preach and preach and preach. You're going to call and call and call. And they are not going to respond. They are not going to repent. You see, Isaiah points to the main problem of the Old Covenant. He points us to the main problem of the Old Testament. You realize that the main problem for the people of God in the Old Covenant was not that they were unfaithful. The main problem for the covenant people of God in the Old Covenant was that they were incapable of being faithful. Incapable. They were not sinning. They were not sinners because they were sinning. They were sinning because they were already sinners. Their hearts were already hardened. Their eyes already blinded. Their ears already deafened. They could not see the glory of God. They could not respond to the truth of God. This is why Jeremiah in chapter 31 says a new covenant is necessary. There must be a new covenant in which I will make you faithful. I will make you my people. I will write my word, my law on the tablet of your heart. Ezekiel 36 says that I'm going to place my spirit within you. Because otherwise, you cannot obey me. You cannot honor me. You cannot follow me. You are doomed to perpetual exile, perpetual punishment. The truth is, is the Bible says the same is true of us. The same is true of us. In Romans chapter 8, verse 3, it says, Because of the flesh nature. Because of our bent towards sin and our passion for sin and our natural propensity towards sin, we cannot be faithful. We cannot perfectly obey the law of God. We cannot perfectly manifest righteousness in our lives. No, for us, it is just as Jesus teaches in Matthew 5. Sure, we may not murder someone physically, but our hearts are filled with murderous anger. Sure, we may not commit adultery physically, but our minds are depraved with lustful, adulterous faults. The problem is not the actions, it's the heart. The heart that is totally fallen, totally, totally depraved, totally despising the glory of God, cl- totally living in rebellion to the goodness of God incapable of faithfulness, incapable of being made alive. The only hope that we have, the only hope that the people that Isaiah was preaching to had, the only hope that any man of any nation of any generation has is that God has a plan. The only hope that any of us have is that God has a plan to come after us. The only hope that we have is that God has a plan to make those of us condemned to unfaithfulness, those of us condemned to exile, those of us hopeless, to make us faithful, to make us righteous, to make us clean. The only hope we have is that God plans rescue. And so as we go into Isaiah, if you begin in about chapter 41... And in the chapters that follow after that, you will hear God confronting and mocking the other gods. He'll call them out, wooden idols, gods that people were bowing down to, sons that they were proclaiming allegiance to. He mocks them and he will say, can you tell me what's going to happen tomorrow? Can you tell me what happened a hundred years ago? Can you tell me how all of these days fit together? Can you tell me how yesterday speaks to tomorrow? Can you tell me what the plan is? So God mocks all the gods of the world. He rebukes them and insults them and humiliates them, pointing out one of those tragic and sad realities of all of the human condition, of all of the fallen world. That we have a tendency to give our hearts to gods with no plan. We have a tendency to give our hearts to gods that cannot receive them. To give our lives to gods that cannot deliver them. How many people do you know give their lives to money only to realize they sold it too cheap? How many people do you know that give their lives to a man only to realize that man is going to trample them? How many people do you know that give their lives to a career only to realize that someday, some point, the career is going to turn on them and they're not going to be able to perform and they're not going to be able to measure up? How many people give their lives to retirement and leisure Only to realize when they look in the mirror that now they live life without any purpose at all. Now this life is filled with gods that have no plan. This life is filled with idols that ask for our affection. Idols that seek for our love. Idols longing for our worship. And we give it over to them. They cannot deliver us. God mocks them so as we come to Isaiah 52 and 53, what we are given is the plan of God. What we are given is the plan of God. He's called them all out. You have no plan. You know not what tomorrow holds. You know not what yesterday holds. You cannot respond. But I have a plan. I have a plan. In verse 6 it says, all we like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned one to his own way. It is not a flattering thing to be compared to a sheep. The Bible does it all the time for us, but it is not a particularly flattering comparison, is it? Have you ever seen a sheep? They don't smell good. They're pretty dumb. They have no defense mechanism. I mean, we're not talking about a cobra. We're not talking about a Bengal tiger. We're not talking about the lion. We're talking about a sheep. It says, all of us are like sheep that have gone astray. He's just saying what we've already said. What can a sheep, what, one of the worst things about being a sheep is you can go astray and not realize you're astray. Sheep have no concept of what it means to go astray. Sheep have no concept of what it means to wander out into the middle of some meadow where they're surrounded by wolves. They're just eating eating grass and doing their baha thing, right? They got Nothing. No, a sheep that goes astray has one hope and one hope only. That they have a good shepherd. The only hope for a straying sheep is that there is a good shepherd that will pursue them. That there is a good shepherd that will come after them. There there is a good shepherd that will defend them. That There is a good shepherd that will plan their safety and plan their travel and plan their provision. The only hope for sheep that have gone astray is that there's a shepherd that they can bank on. For all of us condemned in unfaithfulness. For all of us who sin not, who are not sinners because we sin, but sin because we are sinners. Our only hope is that our shepherd has a plan. We have wandered astray. The plan he gives us is spectacular. As a matter of fact, there are probably some of you here this morning that you don't even believe all of this. You want to, but you don't. You hear these words and you you hear how beautiful the plan of God is and how beautiful the gospel is. And even though you find yourself doubting and even though you find yourself filled with unbelief, wouldn't it be great to believe this story? How can we know it's true? God unveils his plan. He says in verse three, "He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with guilt, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and esteemed not. that God planned to come. He planned to come to us because we could not go to him, but he did not come, planned to come to parades. He did not plan to come to marching bands, walking down and, and, and people celebrating his arrival. He did not come to where he would be showered with affection and showered with love. No, he planned to come where he would be utterly and totally rejected. And think about this: billions and billions and billions of years before the first word was ever spoken and the earth came to be and the heavens and the earth were made, before light illuminated this creation, before any of that happened, he already knew about your rejection. He already knew that when he came into the earth, that his beard would be ripped out of his face. He already knew that when he came to the earth to redeem his people with his plan, that he'd be spat upon and he would wipe the spit of a man off of his face. Imagine such a thing, the Creator God wiping spit of the created man off of his face. He already knew that they would conspire to kill him, that they would loathe his existence. They would accuse him of being a heretic. They would accuse him of treason. They would have accused him of anything they could possibly pin on him. But he would plan to become flesh anyway. Would you? If you knew what the plan was going to look like ahead of time, would you sign up for it? If you were God in all of your glory, surrounded by myriads and myriads of thousands of creatures, proclaiming your glory, the glory that you and you alone are due, and and you're seated upon your throne, ruling over the cosmos, would you leave to go and be spat upon? Would you leave and go to where you know you will be utterly rejected and esteemed not? God planned to come. God planned to come where he would be rejected. But not only would he be rejected, he planned to come where he planned to die. It says that he was going to be pierced for our transgressions. He's going to be crushed for our iniquities. Those are two different words for sin. Those are two different words for fallenness. Two different words for unfaithfulness. Iniquity being the strongest word in all of the Bible to describe sin. He would be crushed for our iniquity. He would be pierced because of our transgressions. It was going to be placed upon him, put on his shoulders. The one who is holy, the one who is righteous, to be declared unholy and unrighteous. But you see, the problem is because of our sin. Because of our sin, the Bible says the wages of that sin is not just a death, but an infinite death. That the only way that you can repay the consequences of your infinite offense toward an infinite God is that you have to suffer an infinite death, bearing His infinite wrath forever. Any plan that's going to redeem such a thing. Any plan that is going to make such a a sinner, such a person bearing such consequences right again must be able to pay an infinite price. Only one can pay such a price. Only one can pay an infinite price because only one is infinite in nature, infinite in character, infinite in holiness, infinite in goodness, infinite in resources. Only one is omniscient and omnipresent and omnipotent. Only one is transcendent and imminent at the same time. Only one is among us and beyond us. Only one. The Lord God. The one that existed before time and will transcend time once it's gone. The one who is eternal, who speaks, and universes exist. But what kind of plan is this? What kind of plan is it where the creator comes to die for the sake of the created? What kind of plan is it where the master dies on behalf of the slave? What kind of plan is it where the king dies on behalf of the peasant? What kind of plan is it where the billionaire gives up his fortune so that he might rescue the bankrupt inmate off death row? What kind of plan is it where a holy God dies for an unholy people? What kind of plan is this? But I remind you that one of the things about being God is that gods can't die. Gods can't die. This plan sounds great, it sounds spectacular, it sounds beautiful, it sounds powerful, it sounds, it sounds poetic even, it sounds impossible, it sounds remarkable, but but it's not feasible. God can die. We know God can't die. One of the things about being God means that you can't die. If you can die, that disqualifies you from being God. Verse 2 For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. Do you see what he's saying? He's going to be born. God is going to be born. He's going to come not to a palace as a king. He's going to go to a barn as a baby. He's going to be born. God is going to become a human. God the Son is going to come as a human servant so that he might suffer on our behalf, so that he might do what God cannot do, die. He's going to know grief, like we know grief. He's going to know betrayal, like we know betrayal. He's going to know sadness. He's going to know sorrow. He's going to hurt. He's going to get tired and sleepy. As Philippians 2 says, he's going to empty himself. It's astounding. The Son of God had to be raised by a woman. He had to be burnt. And kept warm. Nurtured. Fed. They go on family vacation. They can't even keep up with him. It's an astounding thing to realize that the son of God had to grow up. Knowing everything that we know. Most likely having lost his dad at a young age. What a plan what a remarkable plan that a God would do something like that that a God would become a baby infinite God would contain himself in a tiny little body born from a woman infinite God would have to have his chin wiped by a woman infinite God had to be fed by a woman infinite God born in no beauty, born in no majesty, born humbly in a barn It's a plan that Shakespeare couldn't have written. It's a plan that Mark Twain couldn't have imagined. It's too far-fetched. It's too unlikely. It's too impossible. You wouldn't buy a ticket to this movie because you would say, that's just crazy. He planned no protest. He'd be born to a woman. Born for the purpose of dying. But notice what it says. It says, on my spot here, verse 7 He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. At any moment, As Jesus hangs languishing on the cross, he could have called down legions of angels to annihilate his executioners. As he stands humiliated before Pilate, as he's tied to a post and beaten by mocking men, as he's spat upon, as he's betrayed, at any given moment he could have spoken and all of them would have ceased to exist in an instant. He could have spoken and they would have immediately stepped out into the most awful judgment, the most awful experience of vengeance ever known to any man in history. But he did not protest his death. The suffering servant came. The Son of God came. Was planning to come. And to not say a word in protest. Willingly he would take your grief. Willingly, he would take your iniquity. Willingly, he would take your transgressions. Willingly, he would take the stripes that were owed to your back. Willingly, he would take the nails owed owed to your hands. Immediately, he would take the crown of thorns owed to your brow. Immediately, he would take the ridicule and the mocking and the wrath of God poured out over him on your behalf. Willingly, no protest, not a word spoken otherwise. What kind of plan is this? What kind of plan is this? That God would plan such a thing. His son, the Son of God, would leave the right hand to be a suffering servant? Not to reign, but to die? Not to lead, but to languish? But praise God, he didn't plan to stay dead. He didn't plan to stay dead. No, verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. This is it. Circle this. Underline this. Exclamation. Whatever you got, man. He shall prolong his days. He's going to be pierced. He's going to be crushed. He's going to die on the altar of the cross. He's going to be slaughtered on your behalf. But he's going to die as a servant and be resurrected as a savior. His days will prolong. His days were planned not to come to an end, but to begin. He wasn't just planning his death. He was planning his deliverance. He was planning his resurrection. He was planning not only how his days might be prolonged, but how your days might be prolonged. That you would not know the infinite wrath and the infinite death that you were owed, but instead that you might know the infinite resurrection offered in the prolonging of days. Where he planned to be buried as a man, raised as a deity. This morning. How can we have hope? How can we have hope? It says that when he's raised, when he's raised, it says verse, in verse 11, it says, By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. You are incapable of righteousness? Why is he going to die? Why is he going to prolong his days? Why is he going to be ra- resurrected? He's planning to make you Righteous. He's planning to make you justified in his eyes. He's planning to make you right again. How do we know that this is true? Because, brothers and sisters, it didn't stay a plan. The plans of God do not remain in the minds of God. We know that the plan of God is true because the plan of God is being fulfilled. We know, and the plan of God is true, as it is laid out in Isaiah 53, because he came. 600 years before he was to step into the earth, 600 years before he was to be put in swaddling cloths in a manger, he was predicted. But then, brothers and sisters, praise God, bless his name, he came. He came. He fulfilled his word. He fulfilled his promise. He fulfilled his plan, a plan that could not have been written by any mortal man. You see, it is Christ's first advent that proves to us the reliability of, Christ, of God's word. It is Christ's first advent that proves to us the reliability of God's plan. It is Christ's coming, the fact that he came and he fulfilled this in scary detail. He Do you remember where he was buried? He was buried in a rich man's tomb. What? Where did it say he would be buried? In a rich man's tomb. He was pierced by nails. He he had lashes on his back from the scourging. It said that we would be healed by these lashes. Six hundred years ahead. We can trust the plan of God. We can trust the goodness of God. We can trust the work of God because Jesus came, because he came. Imagine Isaiah, imagine how painful waiting must have been for him. How badly he must have wanted the suffering, of, the suffering servant to come then. How badly he must have wanted this Messiah, this this figure that that God was telling him and speaking through him. How badly he must have wanted his deliverance that day. How badly he must have wanted to know to be made righteous and to see all the people of God made righteous on his behalf. How badly he must have wanted to see it. He waited and waited and waited and he never saw it. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're threatened with fiery furnaces. Lions mouths, they're exiled into Babylon. They can't even pray in public without having to have a hard time. How badly they must have wanted the suffering servant to come. How they must have longed and waited. How they must have wondered, God, why can't you send him now? Why can't you make us righteous now? Why can't you fix this now? How Ezra and Nehemiah must have longed for him to come. As they rebuilt the temple and rebuilt the walls. As they saw the people, the the house of God in shambles. And the the city of God destroyed. As they saw the weakness and the threats. How they must have longed that the suffering servant would come. That he would come. And make them righteous. And make them holy. And make them faithful. How they must have longed for him to come. So they might be restored and celebrate. And experience the spoils as it says in verse 12. They waited. And they waited, and they waited, and they did only what they could do, trust, trust. Trust that God would see it through, trust that God's plan would come to be, trust that God would bring all of this to fruition, and it would be totally and fully manifested. And then he came. Brothers and sisters, if you can trust God in this, you can trust Him in anything. You can trust Him in anything. Right now, many of you are having difficulty trusting. You see the difficulties of life, and you hear us talk all the time about how these things fit together for your good and for God's glory, but man, you just lost your kid. How are you supposed to deal with that? That sounds good until you lose your kid. You go through chemotherapy and you go through dialysis and you're wondering, how in the world can I know this is going to work out? How in the world can I know that all of this is connected? How in the world am I supposed to trust in the plan of God? Your marriage begins to collapse. You're afraid to travel because you're afraid if you go to a a concert or you go to a Christmas party at work, a radical extremist is going to come in and blow the place away. How can we know that all of the stuff that is happening is going to fit together in the plan of God? How can we be sure that it's going to work together for our good and for His glory? He came. He came, brothers and sisters. His plan is being fulfilled. He is not leaving it in his mind. He is not leaving it written on some holy tablet in the heavens. He is acting it through. He is carrying it out. His plan is coming to bear. You can trust him. Shabani, the last sermon he ever preached here was, you can trust him where you cannot trace him. You can't trace God in many of life's circumstances. You can't see God in many of life's difficulties. But brothers and sisters, you can trust him. He has written a plan that is more spectacular than any man could imagine. He has a plan that is greater for you than you could ever even comprehend. He has a plan that is being woven together providentially by his glory and for by his grace and by his mercy. You can trust him even though you can't trace him. his plans not finished his plans not finished I love how Isaiah 53 is written Did you notice how most of it is written in the past tense remember this is he's speaking into the future he's speaking 600 years from now and what does he say he was pierced for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities when it comes to the plans of God, when God tells you his plan, you can always speak as though it's already happened. Do you realize that? You can always speak as though it's already happened. When God gives you his plan in the present, you can already assume it's going to be a part of your past because it's going to happen. It's going to happen. If God tells you he will make it good, he will make it good. If God tells you he will make it beautiful, he will make it beautiful. If God tells you that your life is not in vain, it will not be in vain. If he tells you that your sorrow and your suffering will not be pointless, it will not be pointless. You can speak of it as though it's in the past. But it on- doesn't only speak as though it's in the past, does it? Beginning in verse, it bookends it with, pres- with uh, future tense. You notice that? It bookends it. Verse 52, chapter 52, verse 13. My servant shall act wisely he shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted verse 12 of chapter 53 therefore i will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors you realize his plans not finished He has already proven to us the faithfulness of his plan, but he has not yet finished it and completed it and fully consummated it. It's already been proven. It's not yet been finished, but he's going to finish it. He's going to finish it. He came one time as a baby. He's coming back as the lion of Judah, standing on a white horse, splitting the eastern sky, calling his church to reign with him. He's coming back, and he's going to wipe the tears from your face. He's coming back, and he's going to wipe the sorrow from your life. He's coming back, and the dead will be raised, and they will reign with him, and they will experience the glory of his personal witness. One day, notice in verse verse 52, verse 14, As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. And his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so, he shall, so shall he sprinkle. The word sprinkle, you probably have a footnote in your Bible, can also be translated startle. Startle, shock, surprise. I think that's probably the better fit of the context. So shall he startle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has been, not been told them, they see. Act 1. Act 1, Jesus comes as a baby. Caiaphas, the high priest of Israel, conspires against him. The Sanhedrin, the ruling body of the people of God, conspire against him. Herod and Pilate conspire to condemn him. They hold him up and he speaks not a word, says not a thing, not an ounce of protest in his body. They condemn him to the cross where he dies a sinner's death. Act two. He comes back, not as a baby, but as a warrior. All of the kings bow down before him. Herod has not a word to say. Pilate has not a word to say. Caiaphas has not a word to say. The Sanhedrin, not a word to say. Not even Caesar, the greatest ruler in the history of civilization will say a word. They will bow down before him and with all of the creation, with all of the cosmos, say in unison, the Lord he is good. The Lord he is good. Jesus is Lord. will be silent this time the plan is not finished but we can speak as though it's already happened the plan is not yet done but it's going to be finished we know this why he's already come once Christ's first advent assures us of his second advent Christ's first advent gives us confidence to know that he's going to come back. If he came to experience the death, do you not think he's going to return for the victory? That's the easy part. That's the easy part. Sin's already been defeated. The grave has already been destroyed. His days have already been prolonged. His first advent is the first fruits of the second advent that is to come. Are you with me? So this morning... You're waiting, you're waiting, you're just like Isaiah was, just like Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego were, just like Ezra and Nehemiah were, you've heard that he's going to come back, you've heard and you wonder and you've heard it and you've heard it and you've heard it and generation comes and generation goes and he has not yet come back. And the waiting is difficult. The waiting is difficult. It's filled with sorrow and pain and grief. Brothers and sisters, the wait is going to be worth it. The wait is going to be worth it. Even though we don't know the time... And even though we don't know the place, and even though we don't know the how, even though we don't know so many parts of the plan, we know the way is going to be worth it. As difficult as it is, as gut-wrenching as it is, the way for Christ's return, for Christ's second act, his second advent, it is worth it. Because we are filled and empowered with such powerful knowledge now, we can worship while we wait. We can worship while we wait. You go through the struggles of life and you stand in a line and you wait. So much of this life is waiting, isn't it? Christmas season is here. Some of you went on Black Friday and I guarantee you did some waiting on Black Friday. Some of you have lost your husband and you're waiting to not be lonely anymore. Some of you are waiting on the husband that is yet to come. Some of you are waiting on a baby that you so desperately want. Some of you are waiting on healing and deliverance from physical sickness. Some of you are waiting on deliverance from emotional despair. Brothers and sisters, we wait in faith. We wait in trust, and when we wait in faith, and we wait in trust, believing with all of our souls and with all of our bodies that God's plan will come to be, and that our waiting will not be worthless, then we worship Him in our waiting. We proclaim His glory to the nations in our waiting. We proclaim His glory to our community and to our families with our waiting, as we wait patiently, knowing that He's going to wipe the tears from our eyes. Brothers and sisters, this morning, are you having trouble trusting the plan of the Lord? Are you having trouble trusting the plan of the Lord? What area of your life do you find unbelief? What area of your life do you, do you find wanting to hold and grip? What area of your life causes you to doubt the goodness of God? What area of your life causes you to doubt the plans of God? This morning, would you bring them to the altar and offer them to him and say, God, I know your plan is good. I know your plan is trustworthy because you have come. God, this morning, I offer up to you my waiting that knowing one day you will come again. This morning, will you offer him your unbelief? Will you offer him your distrust? Will you offer him your faith to worship him as you wait? Let us pray.